hey, I received a text uh, this week um, that was very helpful because what it did in this text, it was really this uh, Bible meme. That's what you do when you're on staff at a church. You just send each other pictures of, of Bible things, kind of lame or corny maybe, uh, but that's what we do. And I got this text that really helped to uh, break down just the way that Paul writes letters, the way that Paul writes books in the New Testament. So Colossians is a book that Paul wrote. So I'm just going to share with you uh, just this breakdown. It's five sections. You don't have to memorize it, but I think it's just helpful on the front end. One, Paul always starts with grace. He says, grace to you. Typical Paul, he's all about that grace, about that grace. No trouble. Okay. Two, then he immediately moves in and he says, first he says, grace to you. Then he says, I thank God for you. I think it's this Thanksgiving. I thank God for what he's doing in your lives. He moves into three. He says, hold fast to the gospel. So grace, I thank God for you. Number three, hold fast to the gospel. And he moves into section four. Always he goes like this, for the love of everything holy, stop being so stupid. That's what Paul says. If you look at any of his letters, not, not me, I'm not saying that to you guys, but that's what Paul, any of his letters, that's kind of what he moves into right after the gospel. And then right there to end it, he always, uh, he always says, hey, Timothy says hi. By the way, Timothy <laughs> says hi. These people always just kind of like right around Paul while he's writing letters like, hey, tell him I said hey. Like, and so today we are going to be like right in between sections three and four of those. So like Paul is telling us to hold fast to the gospel, but then we're kind of diving into the, hey, don't be so dumb section. Um, again, Paul, not me, but we're right in between those. And if you were here last week, Trey Bailey, he set us up really well. Um, he covered the rest of Colossians 1. And, and what's embedded there in Colossians 1 is this hymn, probably the earliest hymn of the New Testament church, the early church. And it's all about Christ. Christ is supreme over all creation. And if you remember, He's not just supreme. Trey said he is the Pizza Hut super supreme over all creation. I mean, come on. Were you a little offended that he compared Jesus to a pizza? Personally, I thought it was a little cheesy. But he set us up great, okay, because he's talking about the fullness of Christ. He's supreme over all creation. He is sufficient. He is the sustainer. He is Savior because he is all this, because he is all this. Do not leave him. Do not depart from him, but continue in Christ. Keep going. Keep running the race. And that's what we're getting to today. Keep running. So I ran cross country uh, when I was in college. Sort of. Sort of ran cross I was on the team the first half of my first semester in college. So I, I was on the team for about three months. Um, Sort of, like I, I went to one race, just one race in those three months, but I went to most practices um, up until I, I ended up dropping out of school. Uh, that was only for a semester, and then I went back to school, but fortunately, I did not go back to run cross country. Uh, it, it felt legit for a moment that I was on this team. Okay, I got my, I got my photo taken, uh, and that was in the yearbooks. I was in this photo with the team in the school's yearbook. I even received a uniform uh, that, if you know anything about cross-country, it covered not enough of my body. Uh, but I received this cool uniform, and, and the initiation onto the team was real. I was part of it for three whole months, sort of. Didn't go to all the races, but the initiation was real. I just didn't uh, keep going. 
you know, I just got on different time schedules with all the other classmates. Your major kind of takes you in different directions. So I stopped really hanging out with the team. I, I tried to run on my own, but that's worse than running with people. So I stopped doing that pretty quickly. Uh, but we just got on different schedules. We had different priorities. And I, I wasn't a runner anymore. In my last three, really three and a half years of school, nobody, myself included, associated me with the cross-country team. But the proof is in the, that 2012-2013 yearbook. The photo is there. Church, if you remember when you first became a Christian, you were probably really excited and overwhelmed and in love with Christ and the gospel. You probably uh, got baptized pretty quickly. You got your photo taken. You received your new uniform, a, a t-shirt. How awesome, a t-shirt that says, I have decided or something like that written on it. But then... Then comes the potentially difficult and the usually uh, long part. The rest of your life as a Christian. The rest of your life as a follower of Christ. I mean, baptism is not the finish line. It's the starting line. Your new birth, your believing in Christ, that is the starting line to the rest of your life as a follower of Jesus. These two guys, J.I. Packer, you may have heard of him, and Gary Parrott, they wrote a book together called Grounded in the Gospel. And in it, they say, coming to faith is the most momentous thing that ever happens to us. Maybe the greatest thing, the, great, the most momentous thing that ever happens to us, but salvation, it doesn't end at new birth. You know, salvation doesn't end like at that moment you believe and that's it. All right, you're good to go. No, Scripture, our Bibles, they teach us to say, we see Christians in our Bibles saying, not just that I have been saved or I got saved way back when. You know, I believed in Christ, I got baptized. No, they don't just say, we have been saved, but we shall be saved. And even now we are being saved. We are those that God is currently saving. Salvation is this ever-present reality. It's this reality this, that just keeps on going. It keeps on moving us forward. And, and this is really getting to the heart of what we're going to cover today. We're covering Colossians chapter 2. And, and this is what Paul says right at the beginning of the passage he says, so then, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, just as you received him, continue to live in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. Salvation is an ever-present reality. We continue in Christ. We continue in faith. We continue overflowing with thankfulness for this gospel of grace that saved us. And this is where it kind of creates um, a little bit uh, of a paradox because he uses two words that almost mean different things. He tells you to continue in Christ. Hey, keep going, keep running the race. Paul keeps on saying that in different letters. He's like, run this race, keep going, keep continuing, but remain rooted. Even though you're going, you're continuing your faith, you're remaining rooted in Christ. Being a Christian, being a disciple of Christ, being a student of Christ, you never graduate from that. Listen, we never graduate from the gospel. Never graduate. That might sound uh, like foreboding or just like, oh, never. But it's good news. Like we never graduate from grace. We always receive grace. We never go beyond Jesus. We never go beyond the gospel. But at Jesus' initiative, Hebrews 12 teaches us, at Jesus' initiative, we start and we finish in Christ, and we are rooted 
in him, which means we can't. We can't go beyond Christ. Instead, like roots, we grow deeper and we grow wider into the soil that is Christ. We don't go beyond that soil. We don't need to. And this is how Paul both encourages and warns the Colossians. He says, you have Jesus. And he's all you need. You have Jesus and he's everything you'll ever need. But watch out. See to it that no one tries to take you away from and beyond Jesus. Just as you received him, continue to live in him. So we're going to drive in, uh, dive into the meat of this passage. And again, we're kind of hitting uh, points three and four. If you remember how Paul formats, he's, he's first going to say, hold fast to the gospel. And that's what we're covering. And then we'll get to the, uh, the dumb stuff later. Not dumb, but you know what he's saying. You know what he's saying. But here we go. We're going to dive in right to verse eight of chapter two. Paul says, see to it, Colossians. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the basic principles of this world rather than on Christ. If you've been here the past two weeks and you've been hearing about Colossians and the city of Colossae, then you know that it's like this big religious mixing bowl, okay? There's so many different religions represented in this small town. So we've still got some some Greek deities, Greek gods, and Greek philosophy. There's some paganism in this place, some weird, mysterious, uh, cultish religions. There's Judaism, and now there's Christianity, which is a good thing. But there's so many religions that some people are starting to uh, mix up the lines. Uh, They're starting to blur the lines. And so what's happening here is this phenomenon known as syncretism. It's where basically like you take um, some religious thoughts from this religion. Maybe you take a practice from this one, maybe another belief from Christianity, and you kind of put them all into a blender together and you sip on that. And that's your, that's your new religion. And that's happening in the town of Colossae. And so now people in Colossae, they're starting to believe and now to advocate that you need this blend of religions and philosophies to sip on that. You need a blend. Like the simple gospel is not enough. Christianity by itself is not enough. Jesus is not enough. You need something beyond. You need something extra. You need something more and you need it if you want to be considered among God's true people. You need this blend. You need something beyond Christ, beyond the gospel. You need this beyondness. And so they're taking these human traditions, things that people have done for a long time, they're taking even science. It says that, that they're basing these beliefs on basic principles of the world. They're taking science, but not just leaving it as science. They're making a religion out of it. And they're creating this new spiritual philosophy, this new worldview, this new religion that's, that's really not Christianity at all. And they're basing it on traditions and science and worldly philosophies, not Christ. But apart from Christ, beyond Christ, traditions and philosophies and science, they're hollow, they're empty, they're unfulfilling. This is the message of Ecclesiastes. He says, if you've read Ecclesiastes, you know, he's like, everything is meaningless, meaningless. All these worldly wisdom, it's meaningless. Why? Because it doesn't last. It can't save. It's unfulfilling. Tradition, philosophy, science, they can't save, and they often change. They can temporarily entertain, but then betray people because they can't eternally sustain people. They don't last. And sometimes I feel like we, we base our lives and, and we study and we rely more 
on like tests like the Enneagram and the Myers-Briggs or like the DISC. Have y'all heard of these? You usually have to take them when you go work somewhere. They give you a new uh, personality test that's going to tell you exactly who you are. I, I hate them. Like I don't like people telling me, this is how you act. And oh yeah, this you're acting like this because you're a seven on the Enneagram. I hate that kind of stuff. But, but there's these tests that I feel like Sometimes just by our language and how much we talk about them, it's like we rely way more on these personality tests and what they tell us about ourselves than we do on the Word of God and the Word incarnate, Jesus. You know, it's like we're walking around and, and yeah, like, yeah, I believe in Jesus, but I live my life based on my Myers-Briggs uh, result, you know, ENFJ or something, whatever it is. Can't remember the terms, but it's like we rely on those things. It's our underlying guiding principle. You know, these things have the potential to be helpful. They can be helpful if they're used as a tool and not as like a, as a guiding principle, as a God. If Myers-Briggs, it becomes my God. That's a, that's a pitiful God. That's a hollow God. In the end, it's going to cave in and come crashing down because it, it can't save me. It doesn't sustain me. It can be helpful, but if it becomes your God, that's hollow. A hollow God. Anything that is extra beyond Christ, if we see it as something beyond Christ that's going to take us further than Christ could by himself, it's wrong. It's hollow, is what Paul's saying. So the Colossians and, and us today, we're being tempted kind of the same way that Eve was tempted in the garden. The same temptation that Eve experienced. Satan said to her, hey, God is holding out on you. God knows you're not going to die. You're going to be like him. God is holding out on you. There's something more. You can be more. There's something better. There's Jesus plus something. There's something beyond Jesus. And it's a lie. These things, they deceptively promise fullness. They promise beyondness. And Paul refutes them. We keep reading in our text. Verses 9 and 10. For in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. All the fullness lives in Christ. In the body of Christ, all the fullness of God lives in bodily form. And you have been given fullness in Christ, who is the head over every power and authority. The fullness of our God. Not just pieces. The fullness of God dwelling in Christ. So who is our God? Why is that significant? Who is God? Our God is the creator and sustainer of all we observe. He is over science, in other words. Science is this observational study, and God is over that because he is the creator and sustainer of all the things uh, that we can observe with our eyes and study through the means of science. Who is God? He is the first great thinker. He is over philosophy. He is this supreme rational being. At the beginning of Isaiah, he says, come, let us reason, reason together. Your sins are like scarlet. I'm going to make them white as snow, but let us reason this out together. He is over philosophy. And who's our God? He is the one who has created order, recurring seasons and days, the things that mark our tradition. God is over tradition and philosophy and science all of our life. All life is sustained and contained in Christ. All life and knowledge of all life is contained in Jesus Christ. Now there's this thought, and not just the thought, like I've had this conversation uh, with Christians, people who say they follow Christ and Christ alone, and yet, yet there's this thought that I've heard spoken aloud. 
among Christians, and they think that Christianity is like, yeah, it's the most, it's the most true religion, but maybe, maybe other religions can teach us something about God and spirituality that we don't just get from Christianity alone. You know, maybe they can teach us a little, we just, Christ can teach us only so much, but we'll just dive in a little bit to like the Hindu scriptures and, and read some of the uh, Islamic scriptures. Even though we know that the Bible is the most true, these are gonna teach us just a little bit more. We'll read the writings of Gandhi, we'll read the writings of Buddha, or even the amount of Christians today that, that dive into things like horoscopes and astrology and zodiac, trying to learn just these spiritual things or about their spiritual selves. And they go beyond Christ. Paul refutes those things. What does he say? He says, in Christ, all the fullness of God, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. It's not just pieces or just a part of God that lived in him, but it's the fullness of God. Therefore, don't be captivated. Don't be captivated by other religions or horoscopes or astrology, these other spiritual things, thinking they're going to teach you something about God and spirituality. Only Christ can do that. Only Christ can do that. It's not just pieces of God in him. It's the fullness of God in Christ. You want to know about God? Look to Christ. The fullness of God lived, dwelt in him. And we have been given fullness in Christ. What Trey covered last week, we have been given fullness in Christ when we were buried with him in baptism and raised with him through faith in the power of God. Trey said, Christ is everything and he's in me, changing everything. The fullness of God dwells in Christ and Christ dwells in us. So be a student of Jesus. Be a student of Jesus and only Jesus and never graduate. Never graduate. This is what Christ has done for us. Verses 13 through 15. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the written code with its regulations that was against us, that stood opposed to us. He took it away, nailing it to the cross, and having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. This is my favorite passage, my favorite couple verses in chapter 2 that we're covering today. He made a public spectacle of the rulers and authorities by the cross. A public spectacle is something that was common throughout Rome. You know, if you're thinking of a public spectacle, think of the cross. The cross was a public spectacle. It's intended to make an example of somebody that's done something bad. It's done something really bad. That's done something wrong, deserving of death. A public spectacle is intended to shame the individual on display. They put them on the cross Naked, they'd be on that cross. They'd be shamed on this cross. And the message to anybody that sees it is, hey, do not follow this person. Do not follow them. Do not repeat their same mistakes or this is going to happen to you. It's meant to shame that person on the cross and to scare anyone else. Do not follow them. And if you take a left out of our church and you drive into town, drive into the Covington Square and you go behind the clock tower and you go behind Mystic Grill. There's an old building, old red building that has a tower of its own. It has windows on all four sides of the tower. And years and years ago, but not too long ago, they did public hangings right there. 
It's eerie. That building's already eerie. But they did public hangings at place. And it was just this public spectacle that was scary to witness. It's, it's, it's horrific to witness, but it's intended to say to you, hey, do not follow this person. Do not repeat their mistakes. That was what the cross is supposed to say about Jesus. Do not follow him. Don't do what he did. Do not follow this guy. And yet the reason I love this passage is because Paul is arguing that Christ is the one that's made a public spectacle out of the rulers and authorities by the cross. This cross, this instrument that was intended to shame him. Hebrews again, it says that Christ has scorned its shame. He has created a public spectacle out of the rulers and authorities by the cross. But we need to figure out which rulers and authorities is is Paul referring to. Because sometimes we hear rulers and authorities. We think of principalities, powers. We start thinking that it's he's just referring to Satan and maybe evil, demonic forces. But right here, Paul's specifically calling out the rulers and authorities of Rome and of Israel. Because you have, right now, you have the best government that the world had ever known, and you have the highest religion that the world had ever known. And and together they came and they conspired to place Jesus on the cross. These powers, these rulers and authorities, they stripped Christ naked. They held him up to public contempt. They celebrated a triumph over him. And yet, after these powers had done their worst crucifying the Lord of glory, Jesus Christ. They crucified him on the charge of blasphemy, rebellion. After they had done their worst, they realized they had overreached themselves. Christ, neither blasphemer nor rebel, was in fact their rightful sovereign. The rulers and authorities of Rome and Israel did their worst. They brought death to Jesus. They crucified our Lord. How shameful then when death could not hold our Lord. Israel's written code, Paul says, Israel's written code is nailed on defeat on Rome's cross. Shame to both of them. A public spectacle of both of them. Christ has rightfully and publicly claimed his authority over every power and ruler because the worst, the worst that anybody, any power or ruler can ever do is to bring death, is to end life. The worst they can do is bring death and Christ conquered death. Rome with its philosophies and deities and the high religion of Israel and their law, their written code, they have been disarmed and we have been forgiven. We have been forgiven. And this is where Paul is changing gears. He's telling you, hey, hold fast to the gospel because we have been forgiven, because we have been brought into the fullness of Christ. Hold fast to the gospel. Do not let anyone judge you or disqualify you. And this is kind of the second half of the passage where he's starting to move into, hey, don't be dumb about these things. Paul, not me. Don't be dumb about these things. So we're going to move into verse 16. He says, therefore... Again, because you've been forgiven of all sin, because you've been brought into the fullness of Christ, therefore do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. Were any of you judged this week because of a new moon celebration or Sabbath day? No, I didn't think so. What is Paul talking about right here? Okay, 
So again, it's this religiously blended society. There's so many different religions in this place, in the city of Colossae. And so here, Paul is specifically calling out strains of, of Judaism within this blended society. There are these Jews here that are putting forth this false notion that Judaism is the fulfillment of Christianity. Okay, you new Christian converts, you need to go beyond Christianity and you need to come and convert to Judaism. But no, we know that it's the other way around, right? Jesus was a Jew. He fulfilled all of the law. He fulfilled all of the prophets of Judaism and Christianity was birth. Christianity is the fulfillment of Judaism, but these people are being told the lie. It's the other way around. But guys, we don't, we don't start in the grace of Christianity just to then graduate into the legalism of Judaism. We don't start in grace just to move into the law. We're not just saved by grace initially and then everything after that, that moment where we first believe is up to us. Oh, listen, this is important. We never stop being saved by grace. We never stop being saved by grace. Christ didn't just come and intervene in your life once you know, got you to believe, and then he, you know, shipped up back to heaven and is just hoping that he'll see you there one day. All right, let's see. Let's see what happens with this guy. No, the fullness of Christ now in us. Christ is with us. We experience his grace daily. It is what fuels us. It's why we live. We never stop being saved by grace. We begin and we continue and we enter into heaven in Christ. By grace, through faith, in Christ. Grace never leaves us. Never leaves us. Paul keeps on writing. That's an understatement, isn't it? And Paul had more to say. Paul wrote another letter of the New Testament. Paul yet, we can't close the canon of Scripture yet because Paul is still writing books of the Bible. I would be done right now, but Paul kept on writing. Verses 18 and 19. If you thought the last verse was kind of funky, just stay in there. Do not let anyone who delights in false humility and the worship of angels disqualify you from the prize. Such a person goes into great detail about what he's seen and his unspiritual mind puffs him up with idle notions. He's lost connection with the head from whom the whole body supported and held together by its ligaments and sinews grows as God causes it to grow somehow. And there are some funky people in this place, in Colossae. Not at each, we don't have any weird people or funky people in this place. But somehow in Colossae, there are some people that are through the worship of angels and these other weird religious practices, they are starting to experience some, like, some sort of visions these ethereal realities. Um, they're, they're sort of experiencing this out-of-body experience. And, and it's very spiritual, but it's not a good spiritual because they're doing this without Christ. They're claiming that you don't have to have Christ to experience uh, the heavenlies where God dwells. You don't have to have Christ to experience the heavenly temple. You just worship angels and do these other practices that we're doing. They're very spiritual. They're not good spiritual. And this is starting to divide the church because people in Colossae, they're saying, hey, if, if you're not having these experiences, these weird kind of moments of, of revelation, whatever it is, then you're not a true uh, person of God. Like you need this in order to be confirmed as a person of God. It's dividing the church. 
But if anything is of Christ, if anything is from Jesus, it's going to be for the growth of his church. Listen, we really can't just discount visions altogether because visions, they do happen. Man, they are a biblical reality. You'll see them all throughout the New Testament, all throughout both Testaments. But specifically, once Christ has come and people are having visions in the New Testament, Paul and Peter and John, that whole book of Revelation, it's this vision, but they are all rooted in Christ. Christ is coming to to relay something to them specifically, and it's always for the growth, for the edification of his church. If anything is from Christ, if it's a vision, it's going to be for the growth of his church. So listen, if somebody comes to you and tells you they have a vision, and yet it doesn't find its root in Christ, and if their vision is not for the betterment, for the edification, for the growth of his church, may not be very cautious of that. Be very wary. Because Paul says, Jesus is our head from whom the whole body grows as God causes it to grow. If anything is of Christ, it will be for the growth of his body, the church. Since you died with Christ to the basic principles of this world, why as though you still belong to it? Do you submit to its rules? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. These are all destined to perish with use because they're based on human commands and teachings. Such regulations, they have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, their false humility, their harsh treatment of the body, but they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. These rules and these boundaries, Paul says, they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. This is like a last jab, you know, one of the last punches Paul is giving to just the legalism of the Jews. This strictly that he came out of. He was a zealous Jew, yet now he, he sees the wrong in it. These Jews, they would be very strict in what they touch, what they eat, and they would look down on anyone who differs from what they view, from what they do. And at the same time, Paul is calling out these people that are having visions they're feeling like they're experiencing these ultimate spiritual realities that that revelation that they're getting is super important and because they're getting these weird out of body experiences they're starting to think that that the body all physical matter is evil to them only spiritual experiences secret revelations they're going to be important and the body they think should be subject to strict discipline almost lining up right up with the Jews now a lot of you probably exercise strict discipline in your life whether it's with, with studying or with exercising or with your job, you, you thrive in rules and boundaries. Like we need rules and boundaries. A lot of times they're good for us. I would say probably all the time we thrive when there's certain boundaries set in place. There are rules set in place, but we have to remember Jesus and not rules. Jesus and not rules changes a person's heart. Rules, boundaries, regulations, they have the appearance of wisdom. Following a long list of rules, it takes discipline and it gives the appearance that one has strong morals. But in the end, Paul says, they lack value in restraining sensual indulgence because a rule does not change a person's heart. If you read the whole Old Testament, you'll see that a rule does not change a person's heart. 
God does that. The Holy Spirit does that. God gives us a new heart in Christ, a heart that starts to desire him and his ways. Holy desire doesn't come from rules, but from Jesus Christ. So then, so then, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live in Christ Jesus as Lord. Continue to be his student. Continue to abide in grace. Packer and Parrot, the guys I quoted earlier, they have this other quote later in the book. They say, we don't move on from the milk of the gospel to the meat of something else. We don't move on from, from milk of the gospel to the meat of something else, but we move from the milk of the gospel to the meat of the gospel. The gospel is what is always food for believers. It's always gospel. It's always Jesus. We don't go beyond him. We don't get out of that soil. We grow deeper into Christ. Church, don't be content just to get your picture taken and your t-shirt that says, I have decided. Man, keep going. Keep going in Christ. Keep running in Christ, but be rooted. Don't keep going beyond and away from Jesus, away from his gospel. Man, grow deeper into that gospel. We continue in Christ. We continue in faith. We continue being overwhelmed and overflowing with thankfulness because you have been saved by grace. You are being saved by grace and you will be saved by grace. And our grace has a name. Jesus. Be a student of Jesus and never graduate. I'm going to pray. The band's going to come up and we're going to respond by singing a song that I think captures Paul's heart in this passage. Y'all pray with me. Lord, it's only ever you. God, you are who saves us. And now, Lord, you are who sustains us. God, this life that I now live after baptism, after new birth, after that moment that I first believed, this life I now live, I live by faith and the Son of God who saved me, who gave himself up for me. I live by faith. Lord, the fullness of God dwells in each one of us. Why? Because we've been brought into the fullness of Christ. Lord, keep us rooted. Don't let us go beyond you. God, don't let us think there are answers about you beyond Christ. No. It's not just a piece of the deity. It's not just a piece of you that dwelled in Christ. All of you, the fullness of God, Christ is it. God, have us be students of Christ and never, never graduate. Praise in Jesus' name. Amen.